Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to all of you out there. This episode is actually a recording of the interview that I had on One Nation Under God Radio, hosted by Dan Zimmerly in Boston on WROL, back on August 21st, 2014, just a few days ago. So enjoy. This is a bit longer than our usual, but I think you'll find the information interesting. Welcome to One Nation Under God Radio with Dan Zimmerly, bringing you our world from a biblical perspective. Join the conversation at 617-500-4525. And now your host, Z-Man. Good evening, Boston. Good to be with you. This is One Nation Under God coming to you on 950 WROL in Boston, Massachusetts. Salem Communications, privileged to be with you. If you'd like to call in tonight, our phone number is 617-500-4525. That's 617-500-4525. And uh, you're going to get kind of a treat tonight. Uh, Bruce will not be on with me tonight. He got caught up in some traffic and different things like that. And uh, But I am joined in the studio, actually, by Richard Walker. And many of you know exactly who Richard Walker is. He comes on uh, about an hour after us, and his show is Creation, Myth, or Miracle. And basically, and I'm going to let him tell a story, but basically what it really amounts to is that uh, he's he's a brilliant guy. I don't know how better to put it than that. I feel intimidated when I'm around him. Uh, he's very, very, very intelligent, and uh, he was an atheist. And he was an atheist because he believed in the scientific model and stuff like that until basically even when he was in the university and he began to question his his professors. And I'll let him tell the story. But as he began to question his professors, the guys that were supposed to have all the answers, they had no answers. And it was basically through studying the, um, you know, what scientists are supposed to study that it brought him to faith because he realized the insufficiency and the inadequacy of the scientific model, and that the scientific model did not answer the questions that were out there. And the guys who claimed to be a science scientist said, well, you're just supposed to believe it because I said it. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, and that's a lot of life. I mean, realistically, whether it's in the political or whether it's being the scientific or whether it be in whatever out here, even in the church, it's you're supposed to believe it because I said it. Now, I love the scriptures, speaking of the Gideons, uh, you know, it, uh, they were, there was the group of people there and the Bible says that, you know, Peter and them came in, preached to them and it says they were wiser than others, but, and they went home and they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. So even though here you got these guys who followed Jesus coming in there, preaching to them, the, the hierarchy of the church, they listened and they went and checked it out. And, uh, when they checked it out, they found out that, uh, you know, it was true. The problem with uh, the scientific model is Richard checked it out and a lot of things. And, and he doesn't poo-poo science. He believes mm. in science. He studies science. Uh, he studies it incessantly. And he's interesting because he doesn't just study one form of science. 
and I'll let him talk about that also. I mean, there's there's people out there that are creationists, and basically what they talk about is they talk about creation, and they talk about, you know, where there were dinosaurs or, where you know, where there was uh, why evolution doesn't hold up, different things like that, why there's evidence to a young earth, many things. Richard actually studies he he studies physics, he studies the stars, he studies kind of everything, and he looks at it all, and he tries to bring into looking at the whole of the picture. It, it helps him to believe in God, which is very interesting. He uses science to help him believe in God, uh, which is kind of a twist. We really wanted Richard from the very beginning. We didn't know who Richard would be, but we wanted from the very beginning someone that could come into the Boston community and speak from an apologetic standpoint, just basically to to give another view of what the uh, intellectuals are taught. Because there's 300,000 college students there. And of those 300,000 college students, the truth is, is a great deal of them are out there. And you're just, you're just taking in anything that is said to you. And you just say, well, it's got to be true because my professor said it. And that's not wisdom. It's not wisdom in any place in life. It's not wisdom for you to do that in Christianity. It's not wisdom for you to do that in in school. It's not wisdom for you to do that in life. It's not wisdom for you to do that in your job. To just randomly accept something simply because somebody said it is very much lack of wisdom. And so we wanted the the students and also other people in the Boston area to be able to listen to another side. And just go and weigh it. Check it out. Determine what you want to believe. But real wisdom is never not listening to the other side. True wisdom is trying to understand every side. So without further ado, Richard, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Um, I tell you what, before I, before I go back and ask you questions about why you began this journey, uh, let, let's just start with that word I used a while ago. Uh, you use an apologetic standpoint of the way that you teach. I mean, that's kind of what you do. You, you go and you do your show and your show is to give people the ability to give an answer as it may be for the faith that lies in them. Uh, explain apologetics. Just explain sure, sure. apologetics to the people. Yeah. It's, well, first we're Christians are told to do this, to be prepared to give an answer when somebody asks us why do you believe that? You know, give an answer, a reason for our belief. And we're also told to do it in kindness and gentleness, which is often the harder part. But so it's just a fact that we're supposed to do that. Um, it's also the perspective that I like to bring is you have a brain, whether you believe you got it because we're created in the image of God or whether you believe you got it because of evolution. The fact is you have a brain. And if you think that your thinking means anything, then use your brain. Challenge what you're told. Question things. Uh, you know, I grew up in the, well, late 60s, early 70s, and the old question authority bumper sticker that was floating around everywhere. In a sense, it's like that. It's, you know, question the sources. And if you do that, you'll often find that, just as you mentioned, people are saying, well, believe it because I said so. Now, I've, I also have three sons, and uh, I grew up in a home with no father, so I had no model, no idea how to be a dad, no idea how to be a husband, and my wife paid a lot for that. But I remember when my kids would drive me crazy with the questions, you know, why, why, why? 
and this wasn't a good thing to do, but I remember shutting off the questions when I'd had enough of it by saying, to whatever they ask, I would say, because the sky is blue, which was a nonsensical answer to what they asked. But it was my way of saying, I can't give you an answer, so stop bugging me. I would give them a nonsensical answer. Surprising how often that turns out to be what happens when you challenge somebody within the secular realm or the creationist realm, for that matter. There's a lot of really ill-informed creationists out there to defend what they're teaching. They often wind up giving you an answer that is as inappropriate as me saying, because the sky is blue. I mean, it's not an answer at all. And so once you realize that that can happen and you realize you need to think for yourself a little bit, that goes a long way. Um, two things I on my uh, Creation, Myth, or Miracle show, two phrases I use all the time. Anybody who's listened to that has heard this numerous times. One is, the devil is in the details, meaning somebody can give you an answer that might sound good when it's a surface-level, ill-defined, ambiguous, fuzzy sort of an answer, but the devil's in the details. The answer is only valid if it provides the necessary details to explain and support what it's claiming to support. So you've... You sometimes have to force people to give you the details. That's what I encountered when I first began to question what I was being told about origins in science. As soon as I began to ask for the details, you know, back it up a bit. Um, give me a reason to believe the point at which you're starting. Justify your beginning, you know, where you're building your argument from. How did you get there to begin with? Give me some details that can substantiate this. That's when I found a whole bunch of the various aspects of certain theories that I was being taught and had simply believed couldn't be elaborated in details. The details didn't work. And you'd often find, well, there's several different versions of the details. Why are there several versions? Because none of them actually work. And different scientists are tweaking the details various ways, trying to come up with an explanation and none of them works well. So you have a whole bunch of different versions. Right now in biological evolution, purely biological evolution, not origin of life or cosmic evolution or any of that, just biological evolution, there's a whole bunch of different theories. Everybody thinks there's only one. The standard one that's promoted is really neo-Darwinism. It's this idea of undirected mutations plus natural selection. That's the standard mantra Undirected mutations occur, no planning, they just accidentally occur, no direction, no guidance, no goal in mind, and the natural selection acts upon the results of these mutations, eliminates the bad stuff, keeps the more advantageous stuff, and that's how everything came to be the way it is. That's neo-Darwinian evolution in a nutshell. There's a whole bunch of evolutionary professionals who know that's completely insufficient. So they've got a whole bunch of other theories trying to shore it up. In fact, a, a group of them, in order to even get a chance to discuss the weaknesses of neo-Darwinism and keep their jobs, they had to have a closed-door symposium just a few years ago. It got written up in an interesting book titled The Altenburg 16, because there were 16 scientists attending a conference in Altenburg. All of them had their own theories of evolution. Now, why are there multiple mechanisms proposed? Because no single one actually works. And if you become aware of that and you use your brain at all, you wind up with, you really wind up with the situation of having to say, well, I'm going to believe it because I believe it. I'm going to believe it often because I don't believe the alternative. Some evolutionists have literally said, 
despite all the problems, it must be true because the only alternative is special creation, meaning pre- creation by God. And that's clearly impossible. Well, it's, it's a fact. It, when I was an atheist, a materialist, I believe there is nothing but matter and energy. So there is no God. So obviously any solution that included God couldn't be correct. Didn't matter what evidence you showed me. As long as I believe materialism really worked, I wasn't interested in any arguments that had anything to do with this mythical non-existent God. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we, we have this in, we have this in Christianity. We have this in faith. We have this in Judaism. I mean, you know, and here's what I mean by that. Okay. We come up with this, um, let's just talk about the different denominations. All right. Somebody comes up with their idea of what the Bible means. Now we've got hundreds and hundreds of them out there, literally. And, uh, and you know, the good thing is, is on the fundamentals, most are, you know, good. And then it kind of deviates out from there, you know, with these, uh, so I'm not questioning Christianity here. I'm just, but, but basically what it amounts to is we come up, we build our belief system and then we use the Bible to, to back our belief system. Instead of allowing the Bible to determine our belief system, we use the Bible to, you know, to back up what we have determined it means. Yeah, proof text. Proof text. That's right. You know, and we can give our verses for this and our verses for that. And it's just, I've always found that to be interesting. It's part of the reason I'm not a denominationalist. I mean, you know, I just, I'm, I try to follow Christ. I try to take the word of God and try to be honest with it and let it speak to me. But, um, when Jesus came on the scene, here was the, here's the truth. If Jesus was right, then they were wrong. And I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. I'm talking about the people of the day. I'm talking about the political leaders. If Jesus was right, then everything that gave them reason for existence from the human standpoint and what they considered the spiritual standpoint would make them non-existent would make them a non-entity. And so basically what it came down to is if they accepted Christ, if they accepted what he was saying, if they bought into this new theology, what they considered the new theology came along, it made their theology null and void. It's the same thing in what you're talking about. If if the scientist ever accepts, and they admit this, this is something they admit, if the scientist ever admits that God is real, it makes them null and void. And they know that. Well, it's a changing a worldview, a fundamental part of your worldview, such as leaving the realm of materialist and becoming a theist, let alone a Christian, just a theist. That level of change is traumatic. It's very difficult. Uh, you resist it greatly. There's no doubt about that. I happen to know I've, I've personally talked to a fair number of creationist scientists, you know, PhD scientists who previously were materialist evolutionists and no longer are. They are now Christians and creationists. So a huge change in their fundamental belief system. And many of them have written about what occurred in the process. It's quite interesting. Just the transition from evolutionist to non-evolutionist, aside from uh, theism or not, a great many theists, a great many Christians call themselves evolutionists. It's theistic evolution. And now they're, they're uh, liking to use a new term. They want to call themselves, uh, or they call it creationary evolution. 
So they're trying to grab the word creation as though it's part of their beliefs. It really isn't. But nonetheless, they believe all of what secular science teaches about evolution. And then they say, well, somehow God did it. But they never provide any details. But nonetheless, my point is the majority believe that. Changing from believing evolution to really questioning it and deciding it didn't really happen. And what I mean by evolution is not, you know, the change in the size of finch beaks, you know, the adaptation, the minor variations that we see. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all living creatures descended from the original living cell or colony of cells, that kind of evolution, that all living creatures came from previous kinds of creatures through this branching tree of life that Darwin publicized. That kind of evolution is is what I no longer believe at all, and the evidence strongly contradicts. But making that change, I mean, I know several scientists who were in the realm, I mean, biologists, uh, microbiologists, things like that, where they understood the science. Typically, it seems to have been a multi-year process for them, where they first became aware there's a problem here, and for the first time began to question what they themselves not only were being taught, but often were teaching. One individual years ago, he wrote evolution textbooks. I mean, he was not only a professor of evolution in college, he wrote a mainstream textbook that was used widely. And he said he he used to brag about getting Christian students so upset they would cry in his class because he would ridicule their beliefs. And he left, he went from there to becoming a Christian creationist, a huge change. And, Interestingly, he could then say, I know how little evidence there was behind the examples in the textbooks because I wrote them, <laughs> you know, so a rather interesting shift. But he well, also said it took him several years when he first began to question it. He didn't immediately flip a switch and no longer believe it. He studied in detail and questioned things and went back and looked carefully. And then based upon what he saw when looking carefully, reached the conclusion that, no, that never happened. The evidence does not support it. Well, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, you have met many of these people. Well, you were one of these people. Although I'm not, I, I'm not, nor have I ever been a working scientist. No, I understand but, that. But, you know, right. you, you were an atheist. Yep. And you were, you were basically in college at the time. Mm-hmm. And you were willing to, you know, you, you were not questioning because you didn't believe, you did believe it. You were questioning because you wanted to understand it. Well, at the start point. And there was no evidence. Well, and and I didn't question any of that until I was confronted with the idea, the strong idea, that a materialist worldview is simply insufficient, that it really doesn't work. And to keep the story short, I, I sat in a room at a mortuary, with the body of my best friend who had just died of leukemia a couple days prior. And there's a, there's a long story about him being ill and all of that. I knew him very, very well, saw him virtually every day. What struck me, though, was I'm sitting in this room looking at this dead body. I mean, it's a corpse, a lifeless bunch of molecules, okay? Now, it's lifeless, but that doesn't mean there's no chemical activity. There's still stuff going on. And the thought that occurred to me was, it is not believable that the only difference between my friend Stephen, his name was Stephen, the only difference between the Stephen of 48 hours ago when he was alive 
and that body in the casket there a few feet away from me. The only difference is a minor change in the nature of the chemical activity. That was simply not believable. And yet, it has to be believable if you are a materialist, because that's all that changed. For a materialist, there is no soul. There is no spirit. There's nothing beyond the purely material. There was still a bunch of molecules. It was the same molecules when he was alive as when he was dead. There's still chemical activity, but it is a little different. So you have to believe the only difference between a living person and their corpse is a change in the nature of the chemical activity. And that hit me like a thunderstroke. Like, that simply isn't true. There was more to that person than just a change in the chemical activity in that corpse. And that thought terrified me because it implied immediately materialism's wrong. It's not true. There's something more to a person than just their body. And the immediate thing that occurred to me was, does that mean all this stuff about God might possibly be true? It wasn't that I ever wanted it to be true. And it was actually a frightening thought because, gee, I've heard sort of these vague ideas about uh, if God's real, there might be judgment and things like that, all of which I just ignored. But I knew about that sort of idea, right? So I didn't really want it to be true. But materialism simply didn't explain what was sitting there in front of me. And that caused me to do two things. It caused me to seek God if he exists. And that was what I literally prayed. Was, if you are real, would you let me know? And I truly was seeking. And then at the same time, back to my college science classes, and began for the first time to critically challenge what I was being taught about origins. And I've thought many times about the fact that prior to that point, I never critically challenged any of it. And the irony to me is, I would go sit in abstract math classes, that's what I have a degree in, and be really good at critically challenging proofs. That's the name of the game in abstract math, is analyze what's presented. Make sure it's absolutely proven, no loopholes, everything totally substantiated, the logic's valid, etc. I was really good at that stuff, and yet I applied none of those skills to critically analyzing what I was being taught about origins, ever. And I went and I read all kinds of books in high school that weren't even required about evolution and about human origins. And I just sucked it all up. And it the irony that I never challenged it struck me later, and I thought, that's really interesting. I can understand why, where people are at who realize they never critically thought about it. And that's why I constantly encourage people, use your brain, think for yourself, look for some details to substantiate the argument. And I provide links to documents all over the place from my website for that reason. So somebody can go look some stuff up and actually think about it. Well, let me ask you this. Um, all right. Because you are a critical thinker, you're in critical math and, you know, analytical. And, uh, and you're a very analytical person. And so you looked at the evidence and the evidence was, uh, it was not substantiated. Uh, there was nothing to back it up. Uh, that you could see. And that caused you to question, which caused you to, you know, to, to cry out to God and say, if you are real. So, so let me ask you this. All right. It is by faith, you know, that we believe. And so, you know, and, and the scripture is clear about that. But the way your brain is, it can't just be faith. In other words, there had to be something well, here's an interesting thought about faith. <laughs> I, I literally heard another apologist make an interesting point about what we often think of when that word faith gets used. Mm -hmm. 
we often think what that means is, I believe it in the absence of any evidence being presented to me. Mm -hmm. I simply believe it because I'm told it. So it's a blind faith. Mm -hmm. You actually, there's actually a bit of a more subtle twist to it often in many of the scriptures talking about it, where you could use the word trust. And that might be a better word for the way we understand faith and trust. I trust an individual to be truthful. I trust God to be truthful. So I believe what he has said. I believe he will fulfill the promises he's made because I trust him. But Christianity is not a belief system in a vacuum of no evidence. On the contrary. Oh, I agree. Yeah, Paul made a statement that I often reference. He made a testable statement when writing to the pagans in Rome that he had never personally visited, at least at that point, when he wrote the letter to Roman, to the Romans. And in the very first chapter, he said, there's evidence in the creation around us for the existence of the creator, and that it's actually obvious that the creator's there. Mm -hmm. And that when man denies that, because God has made it obvious through the creation, to deny his existence means you are without excuse. And that's really a testable statement. That's actually a scientific statement. He's, his claim could be looked at as saying, if I observe the world around me, if I carefully investigate the universe, the physical world, and can explain absolutely everything I see without any necessity for God, without any necessity for a transcendent creator at all, if I could do that, then Paul's statement would be false. There would be no evidence for the creator. And that's what's so fascinating. The closer we look at the world around us, the more often we hit the wall where materialism and purely naturalistic processes cannot explain what we observe. It can explain the operation of what we observe today, but it can't explain how it got there in the first place. And yet the scriptures, the scriptures way before there were modern science, spoke of things. You know, the scripture... Isaiah talks about, you know, the earth, the circle of the earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was seven, eight hundred years before Christ. Talks about the circle of the earth. You know, the, what was the guy's name? Uh, Matthew Murray, who, who charted the oceans. He charted the oceans. You know, you, common sense says the fastest way to get somewhere is from point A to point B, go a straight line. And that's what they did. And Matthew Murray, reading the Bible, it talked about the paths of the sea. Mm -hmm. And he said, if the Bible says there's paths in the sea, there's got to be paths in the sea. And, and he went out and he charted them. Well, he looked for them. He that was the key. Them. He looked for them. Yeah. And then he found them. And what's interesting is when we look at these, um, you know, like satellite views of the, of the earth, you can sit there and see them. You know, yeah. you can see from overhead, you can see the paths of the ocean. But, yeah. You know, even things like germs, you know, I mean, the word of God was really clear about protecting your, you know, what's going on with Ebola right now. You know, one of the reasons that is such a problem over there is those people still have not come to the place of understanding, you know, just certain things. The Bible talked about those things. It talked about quarantining. You know, the Bible talked about ice on the bottom of the ocean. And they just discovered that to be true as truism recently, you know, in the last 30 years, uh, you know, all I'm saying is, is, is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the Bible spoke of things that you couldn't have known. You couldn't have known. You just could not have known about it. And yet. There it is. There it is. Now, what's interesting is, in our culture, the exact opposite is portrayed all the time. 
what's portrayed in culture is, oh, the Bible taught the earth is flat. You know, the flat earth came out of the Bible. That's the claim. It's a false claim if you examine it closely. You just mentioned scriptures that said otherwise. All kinds of church fathers who wrote about things said otherwise. It was very clear. The ancients did not believe the earth was flat. There's all kinds of evidence that shows you it's not flat, and they wrote about it. I mean, this is unquestionable. The irony is there actually is a flat earth society today. It's headed by an atheist, <laughs> evolutionist. It's hilarious to me. I have no idea why anybody would believe. But um, but there, there's the myth of the flat earth. And so I I believed a number of things about the Bible that I now know were false. I had never investigated it myself. It doesn't actually say that. And you're right. We're, we're told to, you know, like the Bereans, challenge things against Scripture, even if an angel of light is telling it yeah. to you, right? So we're supposed to challenge things. My my wife is a gifted teacher with kids, and kindergarten's about her favorite age. And when she teaches kindergarten at church, she teaches these kids the idea that look it up in the Bible. She was, Years ago, I remember one little boy came up and said, did does the Bible really say this? And her answer was, well, does it? Let's see. Bring your Bible up here. Let's look it up. In other words, don't take my word for it. And I've been, uh, I've spoken in the pulpit a number of times. And when I do, it's, I mean, I'm not a preacher. <laughs> when I speak in the pulpit, it's more like teaching a class. But nonetheless, I've done that a number of times. I have been so tempted. I've not done this, and it would probably be a bad idea, and I probably will or should never do it. But I've been tempted to say something about Scripture that is absolutely false, oh, I do. just to see if anybody challenges me on it, you know, I, and then I point actually, it out later. Okay. I actually, you know, have been sitting in dead Sunday school classes, and sometimes a visitor, you know, I mean, as a visitor, I would be the visitor, and I'd be sitting there in a Sunday school class that was deader than a doorknob. So you want to stir it up a bit. And I would say something <laughs> purposefully. Just off the wall. Yeah. If nothing else, just to, just to get them going. You know, just to get them fighting. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, the, the truth is, is we have a society, you know, whether it's in the political or whether it's in the, the spiritual or whatever, you know, we, we just accept it because people say it. Yeah. And, well, you know, I, actually, I, let me, let me say, Dan, yeah. there's a caveat on that. Okay. We accept. We accept it because people say it when we like what they say. That's a good point. We selectively accept it because they say it. I, I, that's very selectively. No, that's a great point. It's really what we want to believe. Uh, remember C.S. Lewis, who obviously became a Christian to those who know who C.S. Lewis is, a Christian writer and scholar and academic and, but you know, he was like 30 years old before he left atheism and he wrote about the fact he did not want God to exist. He said his view of what God would be, if I remember his phrase correctly, it was God would be a cosmic interferer. And so he did not want God to exist. But he was honest enough with the evidence for his existence that he eventually succumbed to the evidence, said, hey, it's true. You know, if you're if you're a person that wants to live a, um, let's just say that you want to live a, a hedonistic lifestyle, or let's say that you want to... Uh, uh, get rich off of, uh, you know, your, your claims and stuff like that. The, the existence of God is something that cannot be a part of your existence because if he exists, you know, it, it's like Madeline Murray O'Hare. 
as an example. All right. Madeline Murray O'Hare, you know, became famous and Madeline Murray O'Hare, you know, I mean, we even talk about her today. Of course, she was killed by one of her own people and murdered and, you know, just a wicked life. Her son hated her. I mean, killed you know, for money, right? For money. And, uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare was no atheist. Uh, that, that's not so. You can, that would, why do we not have a Casper the friendly ghost hate group out here? You know, I mean, really, I mean, why don't we? It's, it's, a person that claims to be an atheist, how can you hate something that doesn't exist? Right. And why do you got a problem with somebody that, that gets their thrills from it? I mean, you know, if it, if it doesn't exist, what's it bothering you? Let's say you're an atheist out there listening right now. What's it bother you if, if somebody believes that God exists? It doesn't, you know, it's not hurting them. It might help them. Why are you struggling with that? Your problem is not a non-existing God. Your problem is, is you know God does exist. And he cramps your style. Yeah. That's the problem. Now, let me ask you something. It's, it's something that hit me recently. Uh, I had never thought about this and it just kind of stunned me when I, when I thought about it. And what I would call this would be a simultaneous, uh, evolution. And, uh, you know, you probably got a better term for it, but that's the only thing I could come up with. In, in all species of animals, uh, even species of, uh, of, of plants, you have a male and a female. Not in all. Well, not in all, but no. uh, but in the majority. All right. Um, in order for evolution to have occurred, let, let's just let's just take the evolutionist standpoint. All right. One day something crawls out of the ooze. All right. That takes a lot of faith to believe. But uh, you know, a bug crawled out of the ooze. Well, that bug would have only lived. Let's just say two months, ever how long the life term of a bug is, he would have only lived for two months if simultaneously the girl bug didn't crawl out. They both had to crawl out simultaneously, and it would have had to have been that way with every creature on Earth pretty well, much. I'll give you the evolutionist perspective. Yeah, the I, I want to hear, hear what they could say about that. <laughs> well, the problem doesn't go away. It simply gets localized, okay, because generally – and again, there is no single theory of evolution. There's many theories. Mm -hmm. But generally, it would be claimed that non-sexual or asexual reproduction, like a bacteria cell that just splits into two, that type of reproduction was first. And then somehow, sexual reproduction evolved. And that is a huge conundrum. Because <laughs> when you go look at the details of how does it work, and what you just mentioned, the necessity of, the male and female, not just existing, but fully functioning and being designed in a way that integrates so they can function together. I mean, the details of that are mind boggling. So there's, there's one of the interesting unsolved problems for evolution is the evolution of sexual reproduction. But they would generally say, well, it probably only happened once. That doesn't make it any better. Um, what's funny about the evolution stories is take flight. Let's say, uh, the basic idea that I remember being taught in evolution was the following. Similar structures imply common ancestry. And virtually every high school textbook in biology ever used in the last hundred years has pictures of vertebrate forelimbs, okay, or like a human arm. There's a number of bones in it, and they'll compare them with the arm, with the bones of other creatures in their forelimbs. And it will say, gee, look, we've got a similar number of bones. They're in a somewhat similar arrangement to each other. 
And this is called evidence of common ancestry. We evolved from a common ancestor, and that's where we got these similar structures from. And it's, they're said to be homologous. So this is called a homology. So the, our, our arms are the way they are because, and similar to an ape, for example, or a dog, or a whole bunch of other animals, because we inherited that basic structure from a common ancestor millions and millions of years ago. They're homologous structures, voila, obvious evidence for evolution, except when it's not evidence for evolution. Because you also have very analogous-looking structures that even perform virtually the same function, and yet evolutionists can't tell a story where they inherited this from a common ancestor because they don't have any way to put together an evolutionary tree that allows for a common ancestor to provide this structure. So, for example, I think currently winged flight supposedly evolved at least five or six times independently. And you look at these similar structures, and they go, oh, that's not homologies. Those are not homologous structures. That's convergent evolution. In this case, they evolved separately, and they just look similar. So, similar structures is evidence for evolution, except when it's not evidence for evolution. And the story can change depending on how you choose to draw the tree. Pretty handy. If I can, I can take an observation of similar structures and tell you, yep, that's evidence of common ancestry, or no, that's not evidence of common ancestry. And both times, I'm talking evolution. Pretty flexible theory. How much, um, and I'm sure you've done a lot of study on this, but how much lies is there out there? And here's what I'm talking about, about that. Um, you know, I, I think it was in, um, early twenties or something like that, that, uh, they came, you know, they were looking for the missing link. And of course they found the Nebraska man. Right. And, uh, and they paraded the Nebraska man. They had a full picture of the Nebraska man. The Nebraska man was fully drawn out from one tooth. Right. One tooth. They found one tooth and they, and they had a picture of what this guy looks like from one tooth. And they, and they literally paraded around for 30 years or so. And then one day they got this thing out on display, you know, this tooth and, and they got the picture of the guy and, and a farmer comes along and said, that's a pig's tooth. Well, they actually found a jaw that they said they found other fossils. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. And said, uh, actually that's an extinct pig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is that, but they had the whole thing drawn out. Now, yeah. With some of the others, the Cro-Magnon and stuff like that, they find well, a piece of a skull. Yeah. They don't find, you know, we, the way that they present it oh, to, yeah. to people, it would be like they found all this, uh, you know, full skulls and stuff like that. And they didn't. And recently they found, I forget where it was, but it was, uh, it was over, um, Georgia, maybe. I don't know, but, but they were digging in the mud and they literally found a skeleton fully in Intact. In fact, I think they found two or three fully intact that predated anything that was Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon and everything, and it was modern human. Wouldn't surprise me. Then, no, then it, would, it actually happened. They would simply challenge the dating. I mean, that's it's so easy to challenge any of that. But, but how you, many lies is there out there? Where you brought out something interesting. Yeah. Let me let me characterize this carefully. Um, there are well, first. Let me give some just some facts. If you go into a natural history museum and you see reproduce skeletons, right? Dinosaurs are very popular, but lots of other things as well. But let's just talk about dinosaurs as an example. Um, you, If you didn't know better, you might think 
that the entire thing you're looking at represents fossils that were actually found. That is not the case. In almost every case, they have very partial skeletons that they actually find, and they reconstruct the rest of it based upon what they think the creature would have looked like. So it's a reproduction. And there's reasons for why they do it the way they do. But what they don't do is make very clear to the public what portion of that is actual physical evidence and what portion of that skeleton did we make up. And there's been some interesting examples where particular creatures over time, they had to keep revamping what they thought the whole creature looked like as they found more and more pieces of it. And their earlier concepts were just totally wrong. But that doesn't mean that's not in a... Adding the additional skeletal parts to build the whole thing inherently by itself, I wouldn't call that dishonest. Not letting the public know what part is actual fossil and what part is reconstruction, and that's at least borderline dishonest. And implying that we know more than we really know is dishonest. But there's been examples um, of just absolute, flat, brutal, total fraud. Not that many of them, but they have happened. Just like there have been examples of preachers in a pulpit lying and cheating their congregation. I mean, people are sinful. That fits into the Christian worldview pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, we're not surprised by that if we believe what the Bible says. So, yeah, Christians do bad things too, absolutely. So we're not talking about that. But in evolution, there's some famous examples of fraud. A fellow named Ernst Haeckel literally is a German scientist back in the late 1800s, and he just made stuff up and published it. He made up an entire realm of creatures that were supposed to explain the origin of life, the Monera. And he wrote it up, and he's got drawings. Like, this is a scientific article, right? Total fiction. He just made it up because they needed something. He also produced a famous set of drawings, which are often still in use today. And you've probably seen them. And many of you listening to this will recognize what I'm talking about if you ever study biology at all. There's a famous set of comparative drawings of embryos of half a dozen different creatures. And it's human, chicken, rabbit, uh, horse. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. About half a dozen of them. And you look at these, these drawings of what these embryos look like, and they look almost identical. And they go through various stages. There's several drawings of each one at various stages of development. And they look nearly identical, especially in the early stages. And you've often heard the claim, well, humans, while they're developing, we go through a fish stage and through an amphibian stage and a reptile stage while we're developing as an embryo. And they, there was a fancy phrase for it, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And phylogeny is the supposed history of how we came to be. What's our evolutionary history? That's phylogeny. Ontogeny refers to how an embryo develops. What does it do as it's developing from a single fertilized cell? That's a fascinating subject, and we're learning a lot about what goes on within developing embryos. Absolutely fascinating area to look at as a creationist now. But Ernst Haeckel made these claims, produced these drawings. They were actually woodcuts, so you could print them. And they were used for, they're still in use over 140 years later, 130 years later in some cases. Do you know how long they've been known to be fraudulent? Since the 1800s. He was called on it right out of the gate. These do not represent what those embryos look like. He changed them. He changed relative dimensions of various parts. He made them look similar fraudulently. Okay, This is well known if you've studied any of this. 
But there's a whole bunch of professors who have no idea. Uh, probably now, in the last 20 years, enough creationists have said this enough times that it's beginning to be out there in the public. But I remember going to a Bible study, if you know, supposed Bible study, on the subject of creation. I saw a sign about this occurring at a local church in Rhode Island years ago, so I thought, I'm going to go hear what they have to say. So I went and sat in there, and it's what I expected. They were teaching evolution, Big Bang and evolution. That's This is what happened, okay? And they had a biology professor there promoting biological evolution, current professor teaching at a state university. She begins describing these embryonic similarities, and I, I literally interrupted her. I said, are you referring to Ernst Haeckel's drawings, his ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny idea? And she goes, yes. I said, are you unaware of the fact his drawings were fraudulent? and have been known to be fraudulent for over a century, and she just stared at me open-mouthed. No. She had no idea. So was she being dishonest? No, she was being deceived. She was passing along false information, but I don't consider her dishonest. But you know what her next reaction was? And I gave her a few, I mean, it was like, look it up. This is not, you don't take it because I'm saying, go look it up. You're going to find out those are fraudulent, known to be fraudulent. Her next statement was, well, that may be so, but I still think it's a good idea. Okay. At that Guess, point, it's dishonest. No, at that point, <laughs> no, let me put it this way. At that point, it's faith-based. Yeah. Because I don't have any evidence for it. It's faith-based in spite of the evidence. That's what it really is. Okay, and I caught her on the spot. She needed a chance to go. But I thought that was a really fascinating statement. And the fact that she was unaware of it is rather interesting. Michael Behe is not a creationist. He's a biochemist at Lehigh, well-known in the intelligent design community, wrote a landmark book called Darwin's Black Box back in, what, 1996, I think. And he was a just total evolutionist, and he kept getting pestered by some students in his class. He, in an interview, he described what happened, and I found it, well, I identified a lot with it, one aspect in particular. But he said these couple of students, Christian students, were sort of very politely pestering him to read a book. They're going, there, there may be some problems with some of what you're teaching us. We really want you to read this book. This this has got some really good questions. And he thought, they don't know what they're talking about. But they, he said they, they were insistent, but they did it politely. And he decided finally to just be done with this. He took the book home over a week, and he goes, okay, I'll read the book, refute it on Monday, be done with this. So he takes the book home and reads it. And he says, wait a minute, these are real questions. These are not trivial questions. The book he happened to take home and read this is a book written by an MD and genetics researcher in Australia named Michael Denton. He wrote it about 10 years earlier, I think 1986, called Evolution, a Theory and Crisis. And he walked through a whole bunch of the supposed evidence for evolution and contrasted it with our growing knowledge of genetics in particular. We're way beyond where he was then, but he pointed out serious problems. Michael B. he reads it 10 years later and says those are real problems. And that began his research into it, which led to him no longer being a Darwinist. He's no longer a Darwinian evolutionist at all, and he writes books pointing out the, the insufficiency and the weaknesses of, excuse me, of evolution. And he's hated because of that by much of the scientific community. But he made an interesting statement. He said he got angry. He read Denton's book, realized there's real, real problems here and real questions and said, how do I have a PhD in this subject? And I've been Never teaching it that. for years at a prestigious university and I am completely unaware of these serious problems. And he got flat angry at that. 
Well, I got angry. That's why I identify with Behe. I got angry when I realized I wasn't being told the whole story either. But you can have people who have a Ph.D., they've done research for years, they have no idea what's out there. The only people talking about it 30 years ago were creationists, and they just, there are many, I've talked to skeptics and scientists, they will not read a paper if it's written by a creationist, which is a pretty stupid position to take, but they won't even look at it, okay? Um, Now there's a growing, the intelligent design movement is not creationist. Many of them are non-Christian, don't believe the Bible, they don't believe in creation in general, most of them. There are some who do, but it's got nothing to do with their intelligent design work. They're simply saying, you know, there's physical evidence here that points toward the necessity for intelligence being active in the origin of these things. The naturalistic explanations are insufficient. That's intelligent design. So you've got that voice out there now, too. Have you ever, um, did you see the movie, uh, two movies kind of come up? Expelled. Uh, expelled. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. You know, because really, he does nothing except just basically what? just walks into questions and say, where did that come from? Right. Where'd that come from? Yeah. And it frustrates the snot. Oh, yeah. Out of, uh, out of the people who are the professors. And, and they make sure that the, the stunning thing was, was the number of professors that they get rid of that even oh, yeah. question. And, and let me ask you this, and, you know, we'll talk about it more on the other side, but isn't science, I mean, in pure science, supposedly, based upon pure evidence. In other words, right. it's not creating something that isn't. It's taking what, if science in its purity is taking what is and, and, and going with what is. And well, yet with creation or not creation, but Darwinianism, they're taking what is not and they're building their entire, entire scientific theories upon what is not. Well, it, I mean, there is the iconic image of the completely objective scientist wearing the white lab coat, looking at evidence, and they follow the evidence wherever it leads, right? They don't have a bias. They don't have an agenda. They're simply trying to figure out what's going on. Well, that's an interesting little icon. It rarely exists because people are people. And if you're a scientist nowadays in Western culture, you better do something to generate research funding or you're going to be out of a job. So you have to generate funds you have to get grants and so there there's a whole we could talk about the whole science of science how that works but it has become an enforcement of bias in various areas you're not allowed to question certain things there's sacred cows in science evolution has been one big bang has been another one for a long time Um, but the real goal there is to substantiate the science mechanism to get grant funding to keep the whole thing going yeah well, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to the day of Jesus. When Jesus came on the scene, uh, the reality was, was, um, if Jesus was right, it made yeah. them irrelevant. And let me throw one thing in real quick. There yeah. are scientists who themselves are very ethical, very honest in their research. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The, they have often problems maintaining a job or funding if they happen to find things that, aren't acceptable to the those politically in control. But I know I talk to research scientists on a weekly basis, and some of whom are very open and ask very good questions. They do exist, so don't think I'm broad-brush no, painting I, science. I, and, and, and I don't think that. I don't get that feel at all. And, uh, you know, but but it's good to ask questions. And Absolutely. that's what we're doing here. And, you know, and folks, we're going to continue this in the second hour. 
uh, you know, come to your own conclusion. Go and search the scriptures daily or just go and search the evidence daily right. to see if these things are so. Back in five minutes. Good evening, Boston. Welcome to Hour 2 of One Nation Under God, where we bring you our world from a biblical perspective. Coming to you live on 950 WROL, Salem Communications. It's a privilege to be with you this evening. Our phone number, if you'd like to call in, 617-500-4525, 617-500-4525. And maybe you have a question uh, for Richard. And I didn't even ask that in the first hour we were sitting here. And honestly, the the information is so good that I'm just kind of uh, sitting back taking it in. I love questions. <laughs> and so... You know, literally, if you're out there and you're a college student and, and you happen to be listening to this and, and you disagree, uh, listen, that, that's what this is about. This is not about us trying to, you know, make you believe what we believe. And maybe you're a professor out there. Uh, call in. Tell us where we're wrong. Tell us where we're wrong. Um, we're, we're big boys. We can take it. And, and I promise you, this is a promise. Uh, one thing that our show has never done is we do not, um, we don't put down our callers. That's just something I've never done and I will not do. Uh, there are, there are people out there on radio that, that does that. I won't do that. I haven't done that. You call in. We will give you time. We'll give you time to, to ask your question and build your point and, and we'll talk about it and we won't beat you up with it. So if you would like to call in 617-500-4525, or maybe you're out there and you're listening and, and there's something in the scientific field that you would just like to know about, uh, this guy has more knowledge of more things. I, I won't ask him what his IQ is. I, have you ever had that tested? Um, when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't, they did not tell me what it was, but I did get to go to special schools. <laughs> I I tell you, I've known some smart people in my life, and you're smart. You really are. Uh, well, I can't play tennis anymore, which is what I really wanted to do when I was young. I spent 30 hours a week playing tennis. My really? knees fell completely apart, and I had to find a hobby I could do sitting in a chair. And I've been a voracious reader since I was, you know, before school. I mean, I think I could read at four years old or something. And I could not eat breakfast without reading the ingredients in the breakfast cereal box, even though I'd read it 20 times. I had to read something. And so my voracious reading got directed into this subject in 1976 when I first began to question it thoroughly. So what have we got now? 38 years? So I've been reading and studying on these various subjects for 38 years. So that gives me a chance to... You know, to get a bit of breadth. <laughs> and let's talk about that for a second. Various subjects. One of the things that distinguishes probably your approach is, you know, I, I, I have actually, you know, read books of creationists, different things like that, but almost every person has a field. Right. They're a specialist. They're, they're a specialist yeah. and they're good. They're very good in their field, but you don't have very many people that are diverse. Uh, you have, you you have kind of made it a point to be really diverse. I mean, you yeah. kind of study, you study astronomy, you study you study basically all of it. Yep. And I why is that? Well, I mean, I love science. When I was a kid, I loved science, and uh, got a four inch cardboard tube reflector telescope when I was nine or ten years old. And horrible thing, wouldn't focus. You know, it was terrible to use. I stood out night. I don't know how many days, spent all night out in the dark trying to see something. You know, I just loved astronomy. 
And uh, I loved physics. At one point, I thought I wanted to study particle physics. I mean, how things are put together is very interesting to me. Then I encountered abstract mathematics and really like that, the notion of applied logic, so to speak, and try to very consistently and very thoroughly provide the basis for everything, you know, that you build on top of it. So I just love science. And my professionally, I've been developing software since the late 70s. So I chase information around. So I'm, I think in terms of information flow and transfers and transformations of information. And that really influences how I view the explanations for things. I mean, when I was a software technical director on naval weapon systems projects, somebody came in with how they wanted the system to behave, and it's got a multi-hundred-pound warhead on it and has to be safe. They had to be precise. You know, there were no ambiguous statements allowed. Things had to be well-defined and had to fit into the overall system context. So I've got that sort of perspective. So in, in one sense, I'm a specialist in bringing that perspective to things, but then I apply it across all these different areas of science, and that's what's so much fun, is it just gives me a framework to ask questions and to seek for things. Does um, it bother you? Um, you know, and this is, um, does it bother you when you see people almost praying, for lack of a better word, praying on uh, the religious community um, by, you know, saying that they're creationist and, and just, you know, that they've read somebody's book or something and, and then they all of a sudden are this expert and stuff like that. Is there a lot of that out there? Oh, Does that abs- bother you? Absolutely, and it drives me crazy. It, that's where I mentioned the hard part of Peter's uh, command to us to be prepared to give an answer was to do it in gentleness and kindness. When I encounter somebody who's presenting provably false information to a group that doesn't know better, that bothers me greatly. And I have personally been present at a session where, for example, the Big Bang was being promoted as just absolute scientific fact in a church context by a Christian. I won't question his his status before God, but he's presenting this as an expert to a church audience saying, this is absolutely what happened, and science has proven this. And I ask some hard questions, because I know this is anything but proven and has some very serious difficulties that are rarely talked about. So I'm in the audience. I ask some questions. He refuses to attempt to answer them. That bothers me greatly. And then actually made a comment about another scientist, referred to him as his colleague, I happen to know the other scientist, so I asked him if he knew the individual. He'd never heard of him. <laughs> so that was misleading, to say the least. That greatly bothers me. So, yeah, I mean, I struggle with that. Um, you know, I, the people that come on, have you ever heard of the Templeton Foundation? I have. They provide Templeton grants and on the subject of science and religion. If you see those two words together like that, science and religion, it virtually always means how to explain religion in terms of the Big Bang and biological evolution. So take the science of the day and read it into your religious beliefs. That's what it's all about. I'll give you an example of a study, the title, just the title of a study in biology that was actually bragged about on the website of a Christian university. Now, I asked the president of this university at the time, I had a son who was graduating high school and looking at various universities. He was offered a scholarship from them. And I did a little research, right? I, that's my bent is go look things up, right? Think for yourself. 
And so I find out one of their prominent biology professors is a staunch evolutionist. And he's promoting stuff all over the place on his personal blogs. So I said, okay, that's interesting. So I ask the president in an email, do you guys present biblical history, creation as history? Do you, For example, do you guys believe there was a real literal Adam and Eve? And his answer is, well, of course we do. Yes. And a direct yes. I then said, well, why then are you promoting evolution? And he tried to say they weren't. And the email thread stopped when I quoted him his own website. They were bragging on their website about getting a Templeton Foundation grant to produce a study, going to be led, by the way, by the evolutionist biologist, right? The study, here was the subject matter for the study. We're going to investigate the, the creation of a new Christian theology consistent with an evolutionary cosmology. A cosmology means how things originated. And so my question to the president of the university was, if you believe what the Bible says, and you actually believe there's an Adam and Eve, why do we need a new Christian theology? No answer. No more emails. Okay? Um, so that bothers me, that parents spend lots of money to send their kids to Christian universities, and they get taught evolution's a fact. And yet they will mislead the parents about what they really teach. That aspect bothers me. Well, it bothers me. <clears throat> I did something interesting in a class here in Nashville. I presented, I won't name names, but I simply quoted a scientist directly from one of his books, an absolute verbatim quote related to origins and related to how you should interpret the Bible given this knowledge about origins. And the class I'm teaching it to was mostly, you know, lifelong Christians, right? There was a number of newer converts and stuff, but as largely people that grew up in the Christian church, very conservative Christian-type group, right? So I show them this statement, and they're aghast. And when I then said, oh, here's the book it's in. You know, I've got the book. And, oh, by the way, this book is in use in the Bible department at the university over there next door that some of you teach at. They couldn't believe it. It's right there in the syllabus. They're using that textbook. And... So there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's under the cover, so to speak, and it isn't overtly made well, you know, well known. It's not articulated to old fuddy duddies because we're just too ignorant to understand what's going on. I'll give you an example. I, I don't know if you've heard about this or not. There's a growing movement within what you would think of as really conservative Christianity, the ones who historically believe what the Bible says. I mean, you got a whole the so-called liberal church that they don't believe what it says and they make no bones about it. I'm talking about the ones who say they do believe it, the, the, the conservative side of things. There's an entire movement to reinterpret Paul, the Apostle Paul, mm-hmm. because his writings cause some real problems with modern culture. But one aspect of it that is reinterpreted is Paul very clearly believed there was a real Adam. Mm-hmm. Well, there was no real Adam if biological evolution occurred. And the theistic evolutionists generally say that's all allegorical and it's just it's just a story to convey spiritual truths. It's not history. It's not what it means. But Paul believed it was. By the way, Jesus believed the early chapters were historical as well. You know what they say about Paul? Paul was simply misinformed. He believed what was commonly believed in his day. They simply didn't know what we know now. And so he he believed falsehoods and he promoted falsehoods in his letters. There are those who are also saying, and I did a whole show on this in excuse me, Creation, Myth, or Miracle, 
I think I titled it. You can look it up on the podcast or my website. I think the title of it is Jesus Was Wrong, because there are Christian theologians who say Jesus was wrong about origins. And they'll say, well, yeah, we still believe he's the Messiah and all that. That was just in his humanity. He believed the commonly believed falsehoods of his day. That's how they sort of explain it. Okay. So is all of this made evident to everybody? No. You got to dig this stuff out. You need to read what the theologians are writing, you know, to have a clue what's really being taught in theology classes. So that stuff bothers me when it's not, you know, lay your cards on the table and say what you mean. Yeah. That, you know, that's fair. And then we can talk about it. You know, the, the, I think sometimes we really feel in Christianity and especially ministry. I think that, um, I think we got, I think we feel that we got to sensationalize things to make it interesting. And, um, and I see that a lot. I, I see it in talk radio, you know, to try to be a showman or whatever, you know, to, uh, to, to shock people. I truly believe that the truth is fascinating. Oh, I, I, mean, do I, I do. I find it by itself to be fascinating. I don't think we got to, I don't think we got to embellish it or create something or Hollywoody, you know, make it Hollywoodish. Nor do we need to be afraid of investigating and seeking no, the truth. We there's, don't. No, there's nothing to fear from what we learn in science, for example. And I, I want to not forget to give you, I've articulated it in a way I think conveys what I mean. That's always the challenge, right? Yeah. <laughs> to convey what you're trying to convey. The difference between why so many theologians, for example, are writing things like this, why they believe that, what, what is the... I don't even understand the point of it. Okay. Well, let me, let me, let me jump into this. No, and what I'm talking about, I don't understand why in, in why Christian colleges or stuff like that. I'll tell you it why. Just, it just befuddles me it, why they even want to go down that it, route. It's very simple. They believe something. They believe a proposition which is common throughout Western culture. Here's what they believe is true. Okay, they believe science has proven biblical creation is false. They believe science has proven it could not have happened that way, and it did not happen that way. Therefore, given that belief, they have to do all kinds of things to their interpretation of Scripture. But it's driven by that belief that science has proven biblical creation is false. So what I like to do is provide people with information so they can think for themselves. I challenge that claim. Just like it's a claim in a math class. Have you really proven that? Show me your proof. Yeah. Show me your evidence. Let me tell you what I believe is an accurate claim. Okay. First, elaborate what it would require. For science to have proven biblical creation is false, what do they have to know? They have to know how it really happened. They have to have a model, a scientific model, that really matches all the observations, a consistent Scientific model matches natural law, matches what we observe, explains what we observe. A working scientific model truly works in the details. And furthermore, that model has to not only work, it has to contradict the biblical account. Then they could make this statement. And many people believe they have such a model. It's the Big Bang and Neo-Darwinian evolution. That's the model, okay? But if you dive into the details of it, there's serious issues, and that's the stuff I talk about. An accurate state. Well, you know, uh, an example of it, and you know, I, I, I cut my teeth on the Schofield Bible after I got saved. I, you know, that was kind of uh, the Bible that my first Bible. I read his notes, loved his <laughs> notes, but Schofield and and his notes are really good. 
But Schofield, he was one of the people that, that bought in and yep. actually promoted the gap, the gap theory. theory. Absolutely. And, uh, and basically the reason he did that is because of Darwin. Yep. He had to, he had to try to, to make sense of what Darwin was saying and an old earth. So there was an original creation right. and then there was the destruction of it. And then there's the new, you know, and then a day could be Whatever. a million years so because, was, you know, and, and so, and the thing is, even that scientifically is impossible because, you know, on one day God creates plants. Plants cannot sustain themselves without carbon monoxide. So you have to have animals very quickly after that. Well, you know what the solution is for some... some... But, but, I mean, that's an example of it, though, is to create a theory to try to explain things. Why not just believe God? Well, they're not trying to explain it so much as they're trying to interpret it in a way that matches what they believe science has already explained. So they think, we know how it happened. The plain reading of the scriptural account doesn't match that. So we got to figure out how to read this to make it match. So they're exactly. assuming science has already told us what really happened. Turns out when you dig into that carefully, uh, no, they haven't. And that's the, that's the point that people need to understand. There are multiple scientific models. I mentioned earlier, there's several different flavors of evolution, for example. There's multiple models. None of them completely matches the evidence. But it's understandable why people get confused. I'll give you an example. Um, Stephen Hawking, very well-known physicist, very associated with the Big Bang. Uh, According to his wife, a very mean man. Well, an angry atheist. He's an angry atheist. Uh, Yes. But in his own book, he makes a statement early in the book, A Brief History of Time, where he, he essentially says the Big Bang model explains all observations. Okay. And in the preface to it, written by Carl Sagan, I've got the details in another show, Sagan says, well, yeah, and therefore, it's really a book about God because it means there is no God. There's nothing for God to do. This model explains everything, and it doesn't have a creator. So he understood what was meant, but he very clearly said it explains all the all the observations. But then in his own book, just keep reading. It wasn't much further into it where he describes yeah, well, there are some unsolved problems. You know what was included in the unsolved problems? The origins of stars and the origin of galaxies. Good grief. What do we observe when we look out in space? Stars and galaxies. That is the vast majority of what we actually observe. We do see nebula, you know, gas clouds that are lit up by radiation, etc. But the majority of what we observe is stars and galaxies. That's an unsolved problem. And yet he just said it explains all observations. Those are contradictory statements. And so if people only hear the first one, and oh, that's Stephen Hawking, he's got to know what he's talking about, I can understand why the underinformed believe some of these mythical statements promoted by certain aspects of our scientific community. The scientists who know the details all know better. Well, you know, if you, if you think about, I mean, one of the beautiful things that has occurred, you know, honestly, is um, Hubble. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll be frank with you. I'm not an astronomer or anything like that, but I could look at those pictures all day long. Oh, They are fascinating. I got a chance in 1972. I mean, I was a high school math geek, and I went to a summer National Science Foundation math program, and they happened to take us on a field trip to an observatory down near San Diego. Which one is that? Is that Palomar? And 
actually got to get up on the catwalk on the outside of the domed building and get down on the floor with the instrument, the actual telescope and all that. But what fascinated me the most were the photographs. They had one whole room with all of these photographs, and you know, I wanted every one of them. Now you can go to, there's a website called the Astronomy Picture of the Day from NASA, from the Hubble and other, I mean, these incredible, we can see that stuff now. It's all over the place on the Internet. Absolutely astounding. You know, it's um, the the concept. I mean, just the concept that you know there was there was a big bang, and it created the the. I mean, it, it's it's the what would be the word I'm looking for the the perfect design of these things. I mean, they're gorgeous, and they and they all have design. They're they're not just randomly just floating around out there. They're designed. Well, and they're designed in a beautiful, beautiful way. Gee, you would think so, but there you are. You're, you know, you're a faith-based Christian, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm just I don't, kidding. I know, but I don't see. You know, what does the Bible say? The heavens declare the glory yeah, of God. Well, absolutely. You know, the more we see these pictures coming back, it's like, oh my goodness. And yep. here's an interesting thing. I, I'm going to give you something that that I've thought about many times. God speaking to Abraham made the statement to him. He said, your seed shall be as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Now, if you stop and think about that, especially in that day and time, from the naked eye, which was all they had, from the naked eye, I think, what was it, uh, Galileo one time counted all the stars in the sky and said it was 1,300 or something no, it's like that. it's about 6,000. Okay, okay. About 6,000. Okay, so you can see 6,000 yeah. with naked eye. Well, there's a lot of difference between 6,000 stars and the sand on the seashore. But now yep. we know that there are a billion constellations with a billion stars each in them. Yeah, we don't even have a clue how many stars there really are. Oh, I know. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. There yeah. are billions of billions of billions yeah. and trillions and quadrillions. And now we're beginning to look at it and say, that's not far-fetched. No, not at all. That's not, not far-fetched. There's as many stars in the sky Yep, as there is Absolutely. sand on the seashore. Well, and the and more, that's inconceivable. The more details we get from things like the Hubble, and, the, and several other satellites we've put up to look at various specific spectra of radiation, infrared, or whatever. We've put up satellites specifically to study certain things. So the, the wealth of data that we have has grown like crazy in the last 20 years. And what's fascinating to me is they keep finding things that simply don't fit the model as to how they thought this was supposed to work. And one of the more prominent ones, just recently there was a headline article in some science news you know, we've talked all, there's been lots of talk about exoplanets, they call them, you know, planets in other solar systems around other stars, right? right. It's in the news all the time. Yeah. However, the nature of these planets absolutely doesn't work at all with how planets are supposed to form. They find gas giants bigger than Jupiter in really close to their star and, and uh, revolving rapidly. That can't happen based on the models for how we claimed we knew solar systems formed and they've literally now said we don't have a clue how, how planets form what we've learned from exoplanets just shows us our model just doesn't work at all well the truth is before we ever had any data related to exoplanets it didn't work anyway and anybody with any interest in astronomy 
go to creationastronomy.com and buy the DVDs from Spike Saris. He's an ex-NASA engineer that questions things. And he's put together, I think, two so far. I think he's got a third set coming out that I can't wait to get. But DVDs about what you aren't being told about the solar system and what you aren't being told about the universe. And he simply shows you what the scientists know and how it defies the supposed theories of how these things originated. It's laughable. I mean, it's out. you laugh out loud when you watch some of these. And yet, it's just out there in the scientific literature. <laughs> if we, we don't have a clue how the solar system formed, and now they're finally saying it that way. Well, let me tell you, if well, we don't we have do a clue. we do have a clue. Well, <laughs> if, if, if we don't scientifically have a yeah. model for solar system formation, then have we proven the biblical account is false? I don't think so, not logically, because we don't know how it happened. And there's aspects like that all over the place. And so from apologetics, you can look at details like that. The beauty you mentioned of, you know, the objects we see in astronomy, yeah. we see a similar beauty as we dive into what's going on within living things, mm -hmm. inside cells, the, the type of machinery that we're finding and what's going on there? Gears. Oh yeah, the gears. Gears in the legs of a of a mite. Yeah, it was a a, a leaf hopper, and yeah, recently, just a short time ago, they discovered a particular little leaf hopper that can jump rather well, can generate over four hundred g's of acceleration. That's twenty times what would kill a human. Okay, so this this little creature can jump really well although it's not the best in the animal kingdom but nonetheless it it can accelerate like crazy now if you can imagine let's say you could jump so powerfully with your legs that you could jump oh i don't know from here to a satellite i mean you know just huge acceleration right what would happen if you pushed a little harder with your right leg than your left I mean, you just go you, spinning out of control, right? Way off. The ability, I play golf, I know. Yeah, there you go. Well, the ability to jump with tremendous acceleration doesn't work unless you can coordinate it really, really well. Humans and big animals, you know how we coordinate it is through our nervous system. NBA players can jump really well. Well, they control their right and left legs and their balance is all controlled by their nervous system. Well, these little bitty leafhoppers, even the short period of time it would take for a signal to get from their legs to their brain and back to coordinate them is way too long because the jump is already done. So they aren't controlled by the, the uh, nervous system at all. They're controlled, in this particular creature, by gears. The two legs are locked together. When it's going to jump, perfectly designed gear. Oh, excuse me, there I said designed. Perfectly evolved, not designed, <laughs> gears mesh perfectly. I saw pictures And, yeah, of the pictures, it's in a, a it's uh, microscopic photograph. Yeah, go to my website. I've got, I point to the original articles, and you can see the picture. It's amazing. These gears mesh, and when the creature jumps, because there's gears locking the two legs together, it rotates through the gears, and it is coordinated. Now, interestingly, the design of the gears themselves was something we'd never seen. And some scientists are saying this may be an optimized design for gears whose purpose is to coordinate very, very well for very rapid rotation in only one direction. They're not designed like the gears we do. They're better for a very special purpose. But those supposedly evolved. They'd never seen anything like that. And laughably, I've forgotten who it was right now, but one evolutionist literally used gears. If you ever find a wheel or a gear in a living creature, then that'll prove evolution didn't happen. You'll never see such a thing. Well, we found both. There's well, wheels and flagella and there's gears and... Here's the interesting part. 
and let me use this as an example of how evolution works, okay, as a science, so to speak. The photograph of the gears is observable science in a laboratory. Somebody else can go photograph them themselves. They can investigate that. They can repeat it. The uh, capability of the creature to jump, how many Gs can it produce? How far can it go? Those measurable quantities can all be measured in a lab. That's examining what is here now. But their story about how these gears evolved is funny. I mean, they said they obviously they had to be advantageous. Otherwise, they wouldn't evolve. That's the whole story of neo-Darwinian evolution. Something randomly gets changed. Undirected change occurs, but it's an advantage. So the ones who don't have the advantage die out eventually, and the ones with it become dominant in the population, and you get all these new features. So that's how these gears showed up, because they were advantageous. That's the story. Well, there's all kinds of other creatures that jump like this leafhopper, other leafhoppers, other species. They don't have any gears. They have two little friction pads that push against each other, locking the two legs. That's the dominant mechanism that's out there, and it works just fine. Some of these other creatures can jump better than the one with the gears. So how is it an advantage? It isn't even produced. And furthermore, the very creature that has them goes through about half a dozen molts where it sheds its exoskeleton as it's growing, right? So it, it sheds it. You know what? The adult leafhopper does not have the gears. In the adult form, there are no gears. Huh. It uses the friction pad approach. So how was that an advantage? So I retold the story. Here's what I said. Here's my evolution story. And this the point of it is to get you to understand that when I'm hypothesizing about how it arose, I'm simply telling a story. There's no way to prove I'm right or not. You're telling it as a truth. Yeah, I am, but I'm telling a story. Mm -hmm. So here's my story about the gears in that particular leafhopper. Those are a degenerate form. That's the original form. Originally, <clears throat> evolution produced gears. But they even mention in their explanation, well, they don't have them as an adult. Well, we think the reason they don't have gears as an adult is the adult form lasts longer than those intermediate adolescent forms because they keep molting, right? So the gears would have to last longer. And what would happen if one of the gears' teeth broke? Now you've got a gear that's out of sync, and it would stress the other teeth, and it would start breaking down, and it just wouldn't work well. So in the adult form, it doesn't have the gears. Well, you just explain why it's not advantageous. So my story is, originally... The common ancestor of all these leafhoppers had gears, but they occasionally broke like you just described. And so evolution provided undirected changes, and some of them started producing these friction pads, which don't break, and they work just as well. They're simpler. Obviously, that's an advantage. So the advantageous form with the friction pads became dominant, and this one just has a vestigial leftover in its adolescent form. I just completely reversed the story. I'm saying the gears are original and the pads are the, the newly advantageous evolved form. And yet the scientists who wrote the article you can read for yourself tell the story the other way. Go ahead and prove me wrong. Yeah. I think my story is more logical. Yeah. But the, but the point is, it's just storytelling. Well, you know something that I, I, I liked science when I was a kid. I think a lot of boys do. I think a lot of boys like science. And probably one of the reasons that boys like science is because science is the one place where they talked about dinosaurs. And, you know, boys, you know, we like dinosaurs. And, you know, there's movies about dinosaurs. And, you know, dinosaurs are intriguing. They're fascinating. They're fascinating. And uh, 
man, I used to draw pictures of dinosaurs, and I'd read everything I could get on. And my grandson's the same way, loves dinosaurs. Um, now, according to science, well, they went extinct, you know, several million years ago. 60, yeah, man never saw a dinosaur yeah. 60 million years ago. And yep. yet, and yet, now here's the yet, and, and I know that you talk about this, and yet you can go to different countries. That And you can go into caves and different things of cave dwellers. And none of these people had modern technology to to see what the other one was drawing. None of them had the ability to, to fly over there and talk about it and to, and to get their stories all correct. And yet, you go into these caves and stuff like that, and you see pictures of dragons. Yep. And these dragons are big. And what's interesting is these dragons... Are all breathing fire? Every, not, not all of them. Well, not all, but, but but a lot of them do. But it's and common. Yeah. Smoke and fire, yeah. and you see it in China. You see it in South America. I mean, you Northern see it Europe. All, yeah, yeah, in Europe, you see it all over the place. And these people could not have put their stories together to draw these things, which means that either everybody had this same oh. imagination going on at the same time, You'll or love there were. Dragons. Well, you'll love the explanation for that. I have mean, it. I think it's laughable. Um, first of all, yeah, not only do you have various drawings, all kinds of stuff, of, of various forms of dragons. By the way, dragons and dinosaurs, okay, they were, this really surprises most people today. They were acknowledged as being the same creatures by people like Carl Sagan. I mean, the scientists admitted these are the same creatures. The question was the following. And furthermore, the drawings and the descriptions, there's all kinds of literature talking about encounters with dragons. There are numerous historians and naturalists, scientists of their day, centuries ago, who wrote about the dragons they saw. Marco Polo documented seeing dragons in the emperor's court in China. He said they bred them. They used them to pull chariots. There's all kinds of historical accounts, okay? So did all these people dream that up? Is it all just, you know, they were all smoking pot or something? I mean, where did it come from? Nobody, nowadays people will just say, ah, that's all mythical, and they don't want to think about it. But it used to be the case, they admitted, this is a real conundrum. The question was, how did human beings who never saw dinosaurs or dragons, either one, same thing, They've been extinct for 60 million years. Mankind's only been around for a million or so in any kind of modern form. So we never saw them. So the question is, how is it that we have accurate knowledge about these creatures? That's a question that Carl Sagan tried to answer. Now, you can't get more atheist than Carl Sagan, right? He actually wrote a book about that called The Dragons of Eden back in like 1973 or something in the 70s. Here's his basic explanation for how this occurred. Our pre-human ancestor, some type of little scurrying around mammal of some sort that was under the feet of dinosaurs during the age of dinosaurs, you know, 60 to 120 million years ago, these little creatures did see dinosaurs and were terrified by them, okay? And somehow these horrific, terror-driven memories got impinged into these creatures' DNA, and we have inherited it from them. So, so that's it, it's, Carl it's a result, Sagan. It's a result of uh, uh, the evolution of man. So whatever it was out there that we came from, they had a memory yeah. of it, and so we got it. Absolutely. That, that, now, what's interesting is 
let's dig into some details. What would this mean if it were true? Okay. He goes a little further. So we just have memories that we inherited from tens of millions of years ago. That isn't how the accounts read. All the accounts are very first person, direct observation. So every one of those individuals had like a night terror dream, only they were awake and they're naturalists and they're historians. And they wrote down about these encounters and they believe they happened, but they didn't really happen. All these different people. And furthermore, these hallucinations or these night terror dreams seem to have only occurred for a short period of time. Do you hear anybody claiming to have encountered a dinosaur in Madison Square Garden recently? We don't seem to be having these dreams anymore. They stopped happening. That's great. So how did that, you know, what's going on here? So again, if you dig into the details of it and try to understand how could this actually be true, it's laughable nonsense. And I've never heard anybody attempt to defend that anymore. Now, one other scientist wrote another book a couple decades later about specifically Indians in the United States, North America, but mostly U.S. They've got these cave art, these petroglyphs, accurate drawings, and all kinds of accounts about dinosaurs, dragons. They call them various creatures. They actually talk about how to hunt them. I mean, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of detailed information. Where did that come from? This was studied by Adrian Mayer. Her theories is these guys were the best paleontologists ever. They found dinosaur bones. They dug them up. They must have reconstructed dinosaurs accurately from them, learned all about the structure of these creatures, and then, can again, follow the logic that has to be implied. There's absolutely no evidence any of these activities ever occurred. No history of it at all. So they did it. Then they made up stories about encountering the creatures, told them as real history to their kids, and lied about the whole thing, and hid all the evidence, got rid of all the bones, all the archaeology, all the paleontology. That's all totally hidden because there's no evidence. And then they lied about it like it really happened and became part of their history. <laughs> now, combine that with the knowledge, and Mayer herself admits this in her own book. Well, yeah, if you look at what they actually write and how they behave, they are afraid of bones of dead things. They don't want to handle them because of their own religious beliefs. So is this in any way a believable account? It's no. it's ludicrous. That's it. That's the scientific explanation for how man has accurate knowledge of dragons, which are the same as dinosaurs. So now, given that there isn't even a remotely viable story you can tell, the last few days, just don't ask. They're just mythical. Oh, you're talking about dragons? Oh, it's mythical. What kind of idiot are you? You know, they just, there's no discussion. You know, it's interesting. His book of Job describes it Absolutely. perfectly. Yeah. I mean, you know. Consider, consider Leviathan, yeah. consider Behemoth, and, oh. you know, it, it's it's just interesting. I mean, and it describes smoke. Well, let me give you one other and one. And fire to, goes forth out of his mouth, you To know? finish this thought, fire breathing? Oh, come on, right? So. You got the bug coming up here. Let's, huh? let's walk through. What does it take to make a flamethrower? What does it take? Chemicals. It means I have to have a storage cell of volatile chemicals that I can expel in a controlled way, Right. And a way to ignite it. That's all I need. If I make a backpack with, with gasoline under pressure and can spew it out a hose and can ignite the hose with an electric igniter, I got a flamethrower, right? Well, let's think about it. Any creatures that we know of that store volatile chemicals inside their body and expel them with a controlled mechanism? Yes, absolutely. The bombardier beetle not only stores one chemical, stores two of them. There's a catalytic effect mixes the two together, controls it completely, got little machine gun turrets on its abdomen, can aim the 
noxious, boiling, explosive mixture that it spews out very, very well. You should go look at the videos of how these things work. So do we have and such the birds a thing? that eat them? Oh, blows their heads yeah. off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some videos of frogs coming up trying to get one, and they get blasted and don't like it a bit. So do we have that mechanism known to exist within creatures today? Yes. Okay. How about an igniter? Well, how about an electric eel? Electric eel can produce 800 volts of electricity. I was teaching about this, and I found a fascinating video on YouTube. I think it's somebody told me it sounded like Cajun French, so it might have been down in Louisiana somewhere. Somebody in the swamps was out hunting or fishing and happened to have the ubiquitous video camera, probably his cell phone, right? Everybody can record video nowadays. So here's a recording. There's there's an alligator on a bank of a swamp, and this stupid alligator tries to eat an electric eel. And the electric charge kills the alligator. You can watch it shock the daylights out of it. It goes rigid. It thrashes around and eventually dies. Now, the alligator managed to kill the eel, too, by crushing it, apparently, because they have a rather strong bite. But electric eels can produce so much voltage under complete control in their body that they can kill an alligator and kill a man. So is it possible? Absolutely it's possible for a creature to have both of those features together. And then, fascinating thing, a number of dinosaurs... Their skulls have these voids, these empty regions. They have no idea what it was for. They'll say things like, well, we think it was used to produce long-range sounds or something. But basically, they don't have any idea why in the skull of some of these dinosaurs are there these great big voids. And they have holes. Could there have been a bladder-type structure in there that held a volatile chemical? Yeah, there could have been. We don't know. We've only got the bone. So is it believable? Yes, it is believable. There's absolutely nothing in science that would say that could not occur. Absolutely nothing. And yet, on the surface, the reaction would be, that's ridiculous. We are so conditioned to believe dinosaurs are mythical. I mean, uh, dragons are mythical. Man never saw dinosaurs. Fire-breathing dragons are ridiculous. We're conditioned by our culture to immediately say that's absurd. But the that's absurd statement does not hold up to careful investigation. Well, just simply uh, doesn't hold up. Another, I mean, you know, just as another example of the same way that scientists train our kids, let's say. And, and we have fallen prey to it. And, and, you know, and most people just go on to accept it or say it doesn't matter or whatever. But, uh, you know, saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. Okay. You know, saber-toothed tiger, it, it lived during time of the dinosaurs. and Actually, and, much more recent. That's more an ice well, age I, creature. Yeah, yeah. And, but you had a show, uh, so I listen to more of your shows than you think. <laughs> you had a show about that and talked about the, uh, you know, them finding dens and stuff like that. And, you know, they, they had humans in there. And yeah, there's no saber tooth tigers. Nobody really questions them overlapping with people. How long they've been gone is a different question, mm-hmm. but they have them overlapping with humans. Those are ice age creatures. They and mastodons and some of the others, but the dinosaurs. So it raises another immediate question. Is it possible that science claims a creature has been extinct for, say, 60 million years, and it really hasn't been extinct for 60 million years? Is that possible? We're finding fish all the time. Yeah. The, the, the first one I encountered, the most common example, is the Salaconth, great big old fish that was claimed to be extinct from the age of the dinosaurs, was actually claimed to be a transitional form at one point. They said it walked on its fins. It's got kind of thick-lobed fins and was a shallow water transition to an amphibian, fit the evolution story really well. 
except for two things. One is, it's never been extinct. 1938, Western white men became aware of it. They got caught by fishermen. Here they are. They pull, Here's a salicot. What's going on here? Great big old fish. Fascinating story. Turns out, I suspect they were well-known in Indonesia. I've read accounts where people saw a salicot in an Indonesian fish market. They're selling it, probably eating it. It's just a fish. It's not extinct. It's never been extinct. You know, so is it possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, I find it, well, how is it puts over in First Corinthians chapter 1? It says, man in his wisdom knew not God. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that you find is that uh, the smarter man thinks he is, the dumber he becomes. Well, that's one thing where the, the best scientists are also incredibly humble. I mean, they realize the more we learn, the more we realize how much we don't know. There were some, back in the late 1800s, there were some physicists, I've forgotten who said this now, a famous physicist made the statement, essentially that we've got it all figured out. Physics is done. There's just a few loose ends to tie together, but we basically, we understand physics. We understand matter, okay? It's done. There's just a couple little problems. Well, those couple little problems led to relativity, a complete revolution in the world of physics and quantum mechanics to another revolution. The Newtonian picture that this scientist confidently said explained everything absolutely wasn't even close. <laughs> so that's the, the best iconic example of an overstatement. But the really smart guys, you know, in areas like genetics and uh, biochemistry, where we've got tools now to investigate things that we could not even see before, what we are finding is astonishing. And the details of what we're finding constantly throw a monkey wrench into the stories about how it originated. And they are just stories. And the details keep contradicting the stories. That's the point. If there's any point I would want to make to somebody, it's that fact. So don't believe the stories are like observational laboratory science that you can go repeat. They're not. You know, I had a um, one of my favorite professors when I went to uh, Bible college, uh, Professor Dean, and actually uh, actually went to his church also because I just loved this guy's teaching. And uh, he was a um, he was a Greek and Hebrew scholar. That was uh, that was part of what he taught, and he was. You know, he was good at it. And this plays into what we're saying. One day, the Jehovah's Witness came up to his door. And uh, he said that the question you always ask a Jehovah's Witness is, was Jesus God? And, oh, no, no. He said, really? No. Well, why don't you think he was God? You know, what do you do with John 1, 1, where it says, beginning when was the word, word for God, and the word was God? Well, that that's a bad interpretation of the Greek. He said, really? Yeah, our scholars have, uh, we, we've got our new Bible, and they open up their Bible, and, and they read it to him from their book, new Bible, you know, which says the word was a God with a little G. And he said, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. Oh, yes, you know, we, you know, our scholars, and, 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 and there's a reason for the story. And, and he said, well, wait right there for a minute. And he went and he got, he got the Greek Bible. He brings it out there, and he had had it open to John one one. Wish I had no idea. He said, uh, "Well, here's here's the Greek Bible, and we're open to John one one. It's this verse right here. Uh, show me, show me. Well, well, you know, we don't know Greek, right? 
They have a faith-based belief. They in have their a teacher. and and, yeah. and the thing was he and and he said, well, I do, and I can tell you, there's no participle there. And he he goes yeah. through this whole thing and and you know, but I think that that's where we are, you know, based you know when when we're talking about science and stuff like that. Somebody said it. Yeah, they wrote a book about it. And they've written so many books about it. You know, it's like the field of psychology. My gosh, what are you supposed to believe in psychology? I mean, there are so many theories in psychology to, to where it, you know, some, some say we started off neutral. Some say we all started off right. bad. Some of them said we all started off good and society made us bad. But there's no, there, there there's no, pattern here right and it's the same way in science well and and even in what you would think of as a really hard science let's say chemistry i know we have very little time left um i think it's important from an apologetics perspective to note something and it is what's presented to the general public and that includes all the way up through at least a bachelor's degree in science often people with a master's or a phd have had very biased experiences like dr behe but what's presented to the public and what's known by the experts can be two very different things. The idea that we understand how evolution works is just flat set all over the place. I mean, Dawkins says, if you don't believe it, you're a moron, you know. But there's a professor, James Tour, at Baylor. He's, a, he's like one of the top ten cited chemistry professors in the world, an absolute expert. He says, I build synthetic molecules. I know what it takes to build molecules. I understand the chemistry. And he says, I do not understand how evolution works, and nobody can explain it to me. And I've asked Nobel Prize winners, National Academy of Science winners, nobody can explain it to me. Yeah. He's got his own website where he talks about this. He has offered to buy lunch for anybody who will explain to him how evolution works. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, they can't. And I want to, uh, just in the last close minute, I want to read something here. Dear sir, I listen to you on WROL in the morning. Boston needs your words of wisdom and truth. Boston is anything but godly as throughout the Northeast. May God bless you, John. Um, John sent us a little bit of money. Uh, and I think, I think he probably gave out of his, out of his need, you know, honestly. And I, I just want to say to the Johns out there, the people out there that listen, the people that are participating with us by just, by just telling others, you know, people like Paul that, that's got a whole group of guys that work with him that listen to the show together and, you know, different ones that call in and just tell us what a difference we'll make. I just want to say thank you because we couldn't do what we do and we could not be heard if you were not listening. And you're making a difference in our lives and you're making a difference. You're making a difference in Boston. You really are. By participating together and letting your voice be heard and challenging the status quo. And that's what we just did here tonight. Richard, thank you. Thank you. God bless you. We will see you tomorrow, Boston. God bless. Well, I hope this was enjoyable, useful, and entertaining, or at least interesting. We probably will be doing an interview like this perhaps twice a month, and I will plan to add these to the podcast. So take care for now.